The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Our guest today is Aaron Levy. He's the CEO of Box and one of our favorite guests here on Big Technology Podcast. I wanted to speak with Aaron this week to make sense of the news going on. And man, there is so much news. And I think we need a nuanced voice like Aaron to be able to crack into it. Of course, we're seeing massive innovation with the chatbot ChatGPT coming out of OpenAI. I'd like to ask Aaron what's going on with that, whether that's a new paradigm shift or just another fad. I also want to know what's going on at Twitter, whether Elon's doing a good job or not. And I think we should also find out what the status is of the worker empowerment movement, where it seemed like workers were in control during COVID, maybe not as much now. So that's the conversation. I think you're going to love it. And with that, I want to welcome Aaron to the show. Aaron, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for uh, for having me. So I want to hit a few current events in the beginning and then go to our main topic, which is going to be about uh, the work from home versus uh, work in the office debate. Okay. Um, Let's start with the big story that everybody's talking about, which is this new bot from OpenAI called ChatGPT. I've had some people tell me that this is the future of technology. Other people talk about how it's a menace uh, and it's (laughs) basically not very viable. Can you explain what ChatGPT is for those who haven't encountered it? it before, or yeah. maybe those who have and just are interested in hearing your perspective. And what what's your take on, on it? Is it the new thing, the new paradigm? Yes. Well, so st- starting first, I'd say it, it definitely is the new thing. Um, and <laughs> uh, and I, I say that um, with a high degree of caution uh, around, you know, what I, what I at least I, I kind of let myself get really excited about. I, I actually probably have a little bit of more of a pragmatic, skeptical-oriented approach to new technology. I'm generally optimistic. I want to be excited, but but I also, because we sell enterprise software, like I quickly, you know, leap to what are the use cases, who's going to pay for it, what what is it going to do? So so I, with that lens, um, uh, I'd say ChatGPT has been a groundbreaking um, uh, example of what uh, what AI can actually do in the real world. So talk about what it is and, and what you've done with it so far. Yeah, so it's uh, it's uh, OpenAI's uh, latest evolution of GPT uh, and their long, large language model, where they've just processed you know an unbelievable amount of information and created a model around being able to interact with uh, uh, with any kind of natural language, um, you know, questioning and and then answers, and um, and then the breakthrough probably user interface element was this ability to go back and forth in a chat like conversation. Whereas previously, what we've seen from some of the GPT demos is really just like an interface where you just type text and then it it produces results from that text as opposed to a back and forth conversation. So that chat interface also um, is uh, is a very meaningful UX uh, improvement in in letting you know I think any type of user kind of come in with uh, in a much more natural way. So the the real breakthrough is uh, is truly its ability to um, understand your question. Uh, be able to process, um, you know, an, an insane amount of information against that question, and then come back with results in a matter of, you know, milliseconds or seconds, and then uh, and then iterate through that conversation as you have follow ups, uh, and it can learn from the full conversation. So you don't have to, not, you know, each individual, um, you know, question is not uh, is not a discrete and separate 
um, you know, element you can you can call back to prior uh, parts of the conversation that you've had. So that's that's a very uh, you know um, uh, exciting idea. I'll give you one example. Uh, this is on the trivial side, and then and then I can give you some more more exciting examples. I I took a random kind of email that I sent the the whole company recently, and you put it into ChatGPT, and you say, okay, you know, summarize this email, and it summarizes it really fu- you know you know fine and and pretty well. Um, and it's like a long email, five or six paragraphs. And um, and then I said, turn it into a poem, and it turns <laughs> it into a poem, and it's an incredible poem. And then you say, turn it into a poem with rhyming, and then it turns it into a poem with rhyming, and then you do it in the form of Shakespeare. And and it takes you know this very very you know kind of relatively dry business topic um, about enterprise software, and within you know a couple iterations, turns it into a Shakespeare poem that that is you know completely you know accurate to the style of both Shakespeare and the and the substance of the information in the email. So that's just crazy when you just even you know try and process how that's happening that's that's a little bit more fun in nature i think the things that are much more meaningful um is is just the insane efficiency that that we can you know, get in a bunch of categories of knowledge work so you know you can do very basic things like uh draft up a merger agreement between two corporations and you can set a bunch of terms in that merger agreement and then it'll spit out right now it's more the example of it but it can you know basically spit out a full contract um the technology is is certainly able to to be able to now do that um, or you can, you know, do things like I want to quickly analyze this market. Um, give me the SWOT analysis or the uh, Porter's Five Forces analysis for a particular company uh, or industry, and mm-hmm. it will then return a set of results um, that are, you know, basically ninety percent accurate. One, one really fun one was um, it can it can a- actually answer very complicated hypotheticals quite well. So, you know, a fun one was was asking it, uh, would Facebook have been successful? If they had launched as a desktop software company as opposed to a web-based company when they first launched, interesting. It reasoned through why it would have been less successful because of how complicated it is to download desktop software, and that would have made the product less viral, and it would have been harder to innovate. And like that is that's a thing where like you know ninety percent of the world population can't can't actually reason that because they don't have the history of of you know successful or or failed web products. Um, so Aaron, so, yeah, the question is that you know we. When we have big technology innovations, they become a platform. There's something that you can build on top of them. Something like, you know, uh, Amazon, for instance, you can sell through it or Google. It has the entire web. This thing doesn't have the web, right? And it's not an operating system like an iOS or an Android. So when we want to put into context, like this is what I'm asking, is it the next big paradigm? Because we want to put into context where it fits. It doesn't have that platform side, or maybe it does. Yeah. So how do you think about that when you when they come together? I think like on the most literal basis, Chat GPT is probably an applied use case. So so that's an mm. applic- that's an application on a platform which is OpenAI. Uh, OpenAI definitionally is a platform. They have APIs that any one of us can go and build on top of. Um, so if you want to be able to send your own email to an Open API, you know Open OpenAI API, you can get back you know basically similar responses as to what Chat GPT is doing. Chat GPT I think is just showing. Whoa! This is actually a form factor, user experience-wise, that might be a, a groundbreaking way to interact with an AI agent. But the underlying technology, as a model, will be available to basically any developer that wants to build on top of it. And that that you could have mm. infinite use cases. I mean, you, we could go start it's a kind company. of scary, actually. Extremely scary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but uh, but you know, scary temporarily and incredibly optimistic uh, over the medium and long Why? run. Why? Uh, because um, the way I kind of think about it is. You know, we have this insane amount of information available to us on the internet. Um, but the problem is, is that it's not really actually that easy to go parse all that information, connect the dots between multiple data sets, 
Um, and so you have to be an expert uh, to, to kind of work through a lot of that information. And so if you can take that expertise and democratize it and make it vastly more available, uh, I just think that that accelerates progress in a whole bunch of different areas. I mean, if, if you were growing up in X you know, city and you didn't happen to have friends that were computer programmers, as I had growing up, I got really lucky. I, I grew up where my friends were computer programmers. If I didn't have that, uh, where, where, how many resources do you have to go to to go in and throw out a business idea or a product idea or uh, ask it, ask somebody to go review your code? There's a limited amount of expertise that is, is available to everybody. So I think the real power of this is democratizing expertise. Um, and then, you know, it's really the responsibility of humans to go apply that expertise and actually turn that into real value, turn that real, into real productivity. And so I think what we're seeing is a step function change in computing where the, the past maybe, you know, 70, 80 years of computing um, uh, from, you know, the, the mainframe days um, uh, and, uh, and, you know, to, and the punch card days to, um, to now what we have, um, we, we are now in a position where we've gone from automating our, our use of information to now actually having intelligence on that information uh, in, a, in a kind of, you know, very, very transformational way. One of the things I find interesting about this chat GPT is its ability to go much deeper than the first 10 links in Google search, like really comb bodies of knowledge and find deeper responses than you would get by, let's say, asking a question in Google and then going to, you know, the first Quora answer or the first forum answer. Like this thing has them all involved. And you know, I'm working with kind of a tricky piece of American bureaucracy right now. I'm not going to get too deep into it, but the thing that this chatbot was able to comb through and propose solutions that I had been searching Google for for a long time and could not find. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's, Here's it's, a question. It's incredible. Yeah. Why didn't Google release this first? They have Lambda. <laughs> um, well, you know, there's, there's, these are, there, there is a very interesting innovator's dilemma challenge uh, that, that you have uh, when you're at the scale of Google or otherwise. Um, you have business model implications. Um, you know, you can imagine in the business model of Google, they benefit from there being more uh, degrees of freedom in the answers because those are going to be advertisers that they can then send you to. That's not mm-hmm. bad. That's just their business model. Um, they have uh, probably sort of, uh, you know, they, they have a level of, of, of kind of, you know, uh, congressional regulatory risks of releasing AI-related capabilities maybe maybe early in in their advancement where a startup uh, is is able to kind of calculate the risk reward in maybe a, a different fashion um, and um, uh, and then I think it's just it's it's fair to say that that the open AI you know team at a technical level and AI level is is you know at the at the cutting edge of a lot of the work that's happening but I do think that there's a reason why there's a reason why Clayton Christensen wrote the book Innovator's Dilemma like it's a real dilemma <laughs> like 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 Google doesn't inherently want you at an inherent level to just get the answer to every problem um, yeah. because, because that might reduce the need to then go click around the web, um, which would then reduce the need for us to go to, to Google. That's not a bad thing. That's just historically, you know, how a product manager at Google would, would kind of be, you know, they're, they're the way that they see the world. Uh, and so I think this is a really interesting tension now to, is this the future of search? Is this something orthogonal to search and it's a new kind of interface uh, for working with information? Uh, does Google respond by by you know building the same thing at that in the at the top of the search results? So many different p- things can play out here, uh, all of which will be very exciting outcomes. And one of the things that's amazing is that ChatGPT is 
uh, only its knowledge base ends in 2021. Right. So it's not even dealing with current events. And I wonder what that is. Is it a determination to not get too close to Google right away? Or here's another idea. The thing is very believable. You're talking to it like you would chat with another human and it presents its answers very confidently. And there's a danger in having that. And potentially like one of the nice things about Google is you search the internet, you know, the internet can be wrong in times. So you hit a bunch of links. If a chatbot who's pretty good at telling you the, you know, the truth or things that are believable presents an entirely wrong answer to you, um, you might believe that you're more, you're so susceptible to believing that. And I wonder if that's part of the worry and, and why, why they stopped at 2021. Why do you think they stopped there? You know, this is uh, this is above my, my pay grade. Uh, you'll have to you'll have to call Sam Altman and uh, and, yeah. and, and see what happened. But um, I think there are probably some reason some reasonable reasons of just saying here's the snapshot. We're going to learn everything at at some kind of you know demarcation point. Um, and uh, you know, but I don't I don't know beyond what 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 strategic reason there. Um, obviously, one of the big problems of it connecting to the internet, which which is one of the other limitations, is simply if it can connect to the internet, then can you kind of start to per- accidentally perform tasks on the internet? Uh, through AI, so that'll be uh, that, that'll be the next uh, very very interesting evolution of this technology. No so. doubt. And I asked it. I was like, imagine what you could do. And one of the things it said was customer service. I was yeah. like, oh, wow, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's not there yet, but it's a potential use for it. So that's going to be really interesting. So, Aaron, speaking of bots, let's talk about Elon Musk and Twitter. I mean, I feel <laughs> like I feel like we have to touch on this. Um, do you think he's doing a good job? So you know, it's, this one's interesting. Uh, you'll have to you'll have to uh, um, uh, accept the nuance. So that's what we're here for. Okay, exactly, and I appreciate that. Um, you 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 can't do nuance over tweets. Um, so so I, I think like any individual, there's sort of complexity to to them as individuals and what they do. Um, and it was funny because um, you know Reed Hastings was was you know talking at the New York Times Deal Book Summit, and his answer was actually probably not far off from from maybe my take, which is. You know, there's some some approaches that he's taken that are like not like how Peter Drucker would have written a book on on business management and leadership. You know, some of the just the speed at which he, he executed certain things um, uh, that that involved organizations and and you know you know the technical side that are like like you know nobody like wrote the book on how, that that's the way to do it. Um, but Elon does his own thing, and that is that is the Elon way, and so like that is up to him, and he owns the asset. So I think there are some things on that dimension that that. You know, I um, I'm like okay, there maybe a maybe would be a different way to accomplish that. I think there are some areas where I think it's actually exciting in terms of the the pure pace of of at least uh, the goal of the pace of innovation uh, that he, that he's uh, trying to put to it. Um, uh, I think that's exciting. I'm 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 a fan of anything that kind of accelerates uh, innovation and the the speed of that innovation. I think it's actually compelling to have somebody that that is kind of comes from a, a slightly different, uh, maybe let's say political perspective, um, operating the platform. And, um, I'm, I'm, you know, as I'm extremely liberal myself. Um, and I think it's an interesting kind of, uh, uh, sort of element to have somebody that, that actually creates a little bit more of a balancing force on the platform. Uh, it might mean that we, I mean, swastikas aside for a second, cause that's obviously bad. Um, it, you know, it might oh, mean he banned that, Kanye for that. So <laughs> yeah, so that he was has good. A line, obviously. Yeah, that, that was good. That was good. So I think it's I think you know I think we may have over rotated a little bit in the past couple of years of like okay like I mean I I wear a mask you know probably more than anybody uh, still but like I don't mind people talking about different you know COVID views like I don't think that's uh, that's a bad thing that 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 people can can have different perspectives 
Um, and so I think the idea of, of Twitter being able to be a, you know, a space where you can get a little bit more around the, the edges supported, I think, is probably net positive. And then I think maybe the one area where, and, and sorry, and, and it's important that I think only somebody like Elon can do that. Um, I, I think there's a certain degree of sort of reality distortion force field that he has where where he just is is able to to pull that off in a way that that most people would would not you know want to deal with the pressure or uh, or or kind of be able to work through. Uh, and then the final thing is, and and this is this is maybe the only the part where where I'm kind of like disagreeing is um, I, I I think I'd pursue a different strategy than he was mm-hmm. than he is. I think the real I think the idea of kind of a consumer paid product is probably less viable for that that pro- that company. I think actually advertising is is sort of the right approach. Um, I think he's you know kind of come back to to pushing more on the advertising side, but. But I think out of the gate, what I would have done is I would have just kind of been so focused on make make the experience better, give people more free products and, and features. Don't don't sort of try and hype up the the, the paid subscription because um, I just think that's like practically speaking, you're not going to get 100 million people to pay for for Twitter. Um, so I'd I'd rather see more of the innovation at just kind of the general population. So that that's the the complex answer. Yeah, it's been interesting to see him light his advertising business on fire, which is 89% of the revenue. And that's also come from part of like the paying for blue thing, right? Which is that that's enabled more impersonations. And if you're like an Eli Lilly, for yeah. instance, and you have a parody account saying insulin's free, you're not going to want to spend on that platform. So he's got to, he's got to make that subscription thing work. Well, and I, well, yeah, I mean, I think that he's either got to make the subscription thing work or the market actually, you know, kind of does its job and says, oh, wait mm-hmm. a second. No, 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 we can't yeah, actually have these, that way. We, we can't have the <laughs> fake insulin tweets. You need to like yeah. revert that. So so I think I, I just think, you know, it's one of these interesting things. And, and I forget who put it best, but like you've seen some tweets where I think he came into the Twitter acquisition probably with his own personal set of, of Twitter use cases and and like you know he deals with a lot of spam bots let's say and a lot of crypto bots and and he's got his own set of issues um those aren't necessarily the same issues that like the average twitter user deals with and so i think he's kind of doing a little bit of 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 you know sort of his perspective on the problem um uh, of like okay you've got to verify everybody and we'll use 8 dollars as this means of kind of creating a threshold where a bot would not want to pay that um but as as you note like actually that could be a very valuable 8 dollars if you were Trying to like tank a stock price uh, or fish somebody's information, so I think it was a little bit of like an erroneous approach to uh, to how they were gonna you know kind of really kind of protect the system. And I think they recognize that they obviously paused it, and they're gonna have to figure out a new system. But I think like net long long term, I'm net optimistic. Um, I think it will kind of deal with with some you know twists and turns. Um, and obviously, like as a user of the platform, I I only want good things to happen to it. And um, and I I think Elon is still. You know, one of the the kind of you know strongest entrepreneurs out there. Again, doing things a little bit differently than uh, than the average approach. Yeah, I do find it interesting how like a lot of journalists and analysts have said this is never going to work, and then a lot of entrepreneurs and CEOs are like, oh yeah, I definitely see the logic. Maybe well, it's on, just on which different. one? Which thing? On Elon and e- Elon, uh, Elon's but- at, at Twitter. Just the general the general movement there, and I do think it's kind of interesting and maybe indicative about how the two different groups think. In terms of like people watching the same thing and having such a different perspective on it. <laughs> well, well, well. I I think they maybe the only maybe the only slight. I'll try and bridge the reality. So I actually yeah. I probably have the more journalist instinct on some of the like self owned failures of like you know the Eli Lilly thing was just like oh come on that would have been like you could have spent five minutes and you would have known <laughs> that would happen like this is not right. that hard. So like 
that that part I I lean on on a particular kind of pattern, and then and then I think the other part that that you know counterbalances that is like. I don't think he wants to lose $44 billion. Um, I do think the market is actually a really good forcing function for eventually the right decisions. And Elon historically is a, is a fantastic entrepreneur. So like you just combine those things. He's still going to be a good entrepreneur. You know, asterisks like I don't know if he's changed. And he doesn't want to lose $44 billion. And the market will will actually be really good at providing feedback as to which features work and don't. So then I think you right. can kind of like, you can like net bet on on the, the service continuing to improve. It'll be interesting to see if he gets people willing to work for him. I mean, they're just, they're trying to hire now because they cut so many. They want people bought in on this Twitter 2.0 ideal. But, and maybe this is, well, no, I don't think the press covered this wrong. It was a brutal few first few weeks for the Twitter employees. I mean, he's kind of like Deion Sanders who came into Colorado <laughs> State. I don't know if you saw that, yeah. but he came in. <clears throat> so he's the new coach there. Yeah. And he just came in and he speaks to the current team. And he goes, listen, he goes, if you're a player here, I just want to let you know we're going to stop disappointing the fans that come in to see you. See you. So get yourself in the transfer portal. And I got some people coming in. And it, it does seem like Elon took the exact same approach there. We got a few positions already taken care of because I'm bringing my luggage with me. And it's Louie. Okay. It ain't going to be no more of the mess that these wonderful fans, the student body, and some of your parents have put up with for... Probably two decades now. I'm coming. And when I get him, it's gonna be changed. I, that's really funny. Yeah. Um the yeah. Uh, I, I think you know one of the one of the um uh one of the bull cases for that approach is um uh is you 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 very quickly sort of set the the flag in the ground of how you're going to run uh the, the place. And then it actually is kind of like a, you just people select into that or not, um, and um, and then what will happen is you know there will be a set of people that 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 apply for jobs there that literally know what they're getting into, and that is something that they are are signing up for. They want to be a part of, um, and it's probably way better to do that approach than one where where kind of it's ambiguous and you don't quite understand what's the you know what 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 is the you know kind of culture going to be at this organization. No doubt. And Coach Prime will field a team at Colorado next year. We'll just see how they they perform. <laughs> so um, speaking of leadership, yeah. Sam Bankman-Fried, or yes. lack thereof, um, <laughs> you were here January uh, January 5th uh, of this year, and we talked a lot about Web3. Actually, it's one. I'll, I'll link that in the show notes if I can remember, but it, it was one of uh, the best shows we've had here. Uh, you, you really gave this perspective about why you didn't believe Web3 was all it was made out to be by its boosters. Mm. Now we're seeing the crypto industry really collapse. Um, when you've watched it, uh, have you, have you A, said, aha, this is what I was thinking about? And B, have you said there's still potential here? <laughs> so I, I, I think my thesis is probably relatively unchanged uh, from, from January. Um, you know, I, I think the, um, you know, as we talked about back then, you know, there's a way you got to kind of separate the philosophy from the reality. So the philosophy right. is this idea of, of, you know, censorship resistant technology that's decentralized and, and we get to kind of own our little bits on the, in the database. And, you know, there's nothing about that philosophy that's like inherently, you know, problematic or, or wrong or something that, that, you know, like that I would, I'd be against. So, so like on one hand, you know, philosophically, that idea, set of ideas is, is seems non-controversial to me. 
Uh, the reality is when you have, and this is just like, I mean, I don't, I, I always get confused to how anybody sees it differently, but that's fine. The reality is when you have like a database and you kind of say, oh, the things in that database are worth something and you can now sell your, your kind of part of that database to somebody else. And then they say that you can sell that to somebody else. And then they say that, that you can sell that to somebody else. At, at some point, somebody's going to realize like, why am I buying this thing at the, at whatever that, that final price point is? And then they're going to sell that thing. And then the next person's going to say, well, shoot, I want to sell my thing. And, and so, you know, unfortunately there's an element of like what comes up comes down in, if there's not a, if there's not like a, a, a something fundamentally intrinsically valuable beneath it all. So in the case of FTX, um, you know, clearly, I, did, I mean, I, I would not, I didn't predict like fraud, um, uh, no. but, but like, I mean, if you had said, and I didn't even understand, I didn't know what was going on with FTT before, before the whole collapse. But if you had said, Hey, this business has collateral that it, it, it uses of a token that it invented, then I would definitely have been like, okay, well that's going to fall at some point. So what's, what, what's that collateral <laughs> kind of being used against? And then you would look at that asset and you'd be like, well, that asset's completely screwed. So, um, so I, I just think that the, to me, it's just like, we just got to get back to like the basics. Like if I, I can't just, I can't invent a thing, tell you that it's valuable and then have you go tell somebody else it's valuable. And then I have that person go tell somebody else it's valuable for that many times before people then sort of start to step back and they say, well, it's not that valuable actually. Like it's a, it's literally a database row. Um, right. and the, I mean, or, you know, it's a, it's an update to the blockchain. Like that's just not that valuable. That's the story of Bitcoin though. So are you saying Bitcoin is the same thing in the same, in that same I'll Bank. say two things on at, at the most technical level that that is what Bitcoin is like, right. like there's there's the only the only kind of two nuances. And this is I come I don't own any Bitcoin. Um, the only two nuances is one. I think like maybe if the world wants one of those, then then you can kind of like do it once. Like you can kind of if everybody just says this is our thing, then then OK, that that's really weird. I don't understand it. But like I, like gold to me actually is sort of like no different. I know that there's actual practical use case of gold, but like, but like gold is like, is a lot of the value of gold is just some historical nostalgia. Like, and, and, uh, and so like the, if some, if everybody wants to agree that like there's a digital Bitcoin thing that, that has valuable because it's inherently scarce. And I do agree that and the scarcity of it, the decentralized nature of it being scarce is the only thing that makes it practical that it even could be digital gold. Um, but, but, that being said, like it doesn't have, there's no other logic to it other than you're buying it because you think somebody else is going to buy it in the future. And there's not an intrinsic <laughs> reason, there's not an intrinsic yeah. reason why that's happening. So, so I still, I, I still, you know, hold the same kind of mathematical, uh, uh, you know, belief uh, of that. But, but like, I'm fine. If everybody wants to do one of them, like that, I mean, that's not, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I can't do anything about it. But, but like when you get to the, the 12,000th, you know, coin and token, there's just not enough money in the world to make these things sustain their value. Like it's just not, it's just not possible. So, so eventually anything that's, that's built on that as the foundation is going to collapse because it will not be worth anything when people go back and try and find money for it. Right. Bitcoin was 40, close to $50,000, $47,000 when we spoke at, around New Year's. It's 17,000 now. You buying? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not buying Bitcoin, no. Okay. So. Let's uh, let's round out this this first half with uh, something on the enterprise side. So um, obviously you work in enterprise technology. One of the biggest, uh, most heavy hitters in in the whole space is Salesforce, uh, a few blocks away from you. Uh, Brett Taylor is out as the co CEO. I never really imagined anyone would be able to last that long as co CEO <laughs> with Mark Benioff. 
And now Stuart Butterfield, who is the CEO of Slack, is leaving as well. He tweeted a photo of himself. I think it was drinking some whiskey. So everyone's kind of speculating what's going on inside Salesforce. What's happening there? Uh, I, I mean, you you are in a much better position to find Fine. out than I I'll am. guess. So, oh, yeah, okay. I'll guess. My guess is that um, it was really nice to be working at that company in a bull market. But now Mark Benioff has to rein the expenses in and the ambition in a little bit. And Brett Taylor says he's leaving to do something more entrepreneurial. Stuart Butterfield is an entrepreneurial person. And they just didn't want to stay in a cost-cutting company. What do you think? Uh, I, I, I may run with that theory. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, these are always tricky, right? So Brett and Stuart, so it's, I mean, so Brett, Stuart, and Mark are, you know, three of the, I think, most successful entrepreneurs, uh, of the web and, and certainly of enterprise software now. And, um, and so, uh, you know, Mark's a fantastic leader, operator, visionary, uh, and Brett and, and Stuart, I think are equally so. And, and I think, you know, you always have this challenge of like entrepreneurs, you know, working inside of larger companies, uh, it, it can always be this tricky situation because because it's always this kind of like you know uh, uh, you know risk reward of of you know your own thing. You control 100% of it, you know, in theory, and you can go and execute however you want. And like you know, it's just hard to to probably have that many entrepreneurs together at all times. Um, mm-hmm. uh, like it's just like it, it's a historical anomaly for that to occur. Um, so whether it was today or next year or five years from now, I think, I think it's, it's just a tricky, you know, balance and, you know, the, the, but I don't know any of the inner workings other than they're all three great entrepreneurs and, um, and I'm sure they have their own kind of personal reasons for, for why their next chapter makes the most sense for them. Okay. Aaron Levy is with us. He's the CEO of Box, one of our favorite guests here on Big Technology Podcast. We just did a run through the current events. Uh, when we come back, We're going to talk a little bit about the work from home versus remote uh, debate. Aaron, as a CEO of a company, has some perspective on that. And we're also going to talk about the worker empowerment movement. Is this the end? Just a reminder, uh, next week, we're going to have two great guests, uh, Stephanie Link from Hightower talking about the market and Dave Friedberg, one of the All In Podcasts uh, crew. He's going to come and talk more current events and agriculture tech. So stay tuned for those shows next week. Um, And again, please rate us five stars if you can. All right, we'll be back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Aaron Levy, CEO of Box. Aaron, um, is the worker empowerment movement over? Like there was this moment where we were talking about quiet quitting and how basically the employees were turning the tables on capital. 
um, dictating the terms of how they wanted to work, when they wanted to work, where they wanted to work. Is that done? Um, well, I, I, uh, I, you know, I, ne- I probably would not be able to uh, perfectly recite the definition of quiet quitting, but the idea that you are not having to work um, <laughs> while you're quitting, I, I don't know if that's worker empowerment as much as, as, as just like, you know, negligence or something. So, but it fits in with this whole pie, great resignation as well. It was yes. all of a sudden, why could you quiet quit? Because you could do nothing and get fired and then find another job and quiet quit there. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, yeah. I've just, I, I, you know, I, 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 I'd say that's like a third, you know, kind of element of not worker empowerment as much as like a different, you know, kind right. of like capitalistic anomaly. Um, but, um, but no, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, these things always kind of ebb and flow because of, of you know, interest rates and, um, and the, the job market and, you know, how companies are performing. Um, and so, uh, so I, I think that, um, you know, if I, if I think about it as like, if, you're, if you are super talented, can you still command, you know, competitive salary, work on great things? go out and execute in a, in a, in a team with a strong culture, like all those things are very alive and well. So, um, so I think if, if anything, um, you know, it's probably just some of the surplus of corporate, um, which I don't really think of as worker, worker entitlement. It's just, um, or empowerment. It, it's, uh, it's just like, I think some companies just kind of ran a little bit too wild with like, okay, there's like just too many sushi bars. Like, like that's not even like it's just like it's like we kind like kind of doesn't make any sense anymore. Like that's just it was a it was an anomaly in like small parts of the tech industry that like most of the economy, you know, doesn't deal with. Okay, interesting. So do you think that the economy now contracting a little bit is starting to put an end to some of that stuff? And and you know where where do you see the economy going right now? Because yeah. it's it's this really odd moment where we do have like. I mean, earnings have been good enough. Um, people are still hiring, but there's this constant specter of, you know, is this thing going to turn over or not? If you if you kind of step back and you and you think about just um, just like a couple kind of key ideas of like, okay, companies that accelerated their growth during the pandemic for specific kind of one time events uh, mm-hmm. because we were literally stuck at home, we had nothing else to do. And you kind of like revert that back to the mean of what what they should have been growing at. Um, if you just take that and you isolate that as one one factor, and then you isolate one more factor as probably like a like a you know somewhat of a super bubble of venture capital going into small startups. You you, t- you isolate those two variables. Those are the two variables that that probably have changed and you know for the foreseeable future. Um, which means that some companies that that accelerated their hiring because they had very, you know, kind of a temporary growth spurt that they didn't know how long that would be extrapolated for. Some of those companies are now dealing with with some kind of new economic pressures that they're going to have to kind of contend with. And then, uh, and then the idea that you are going to, you know, raise venture capital at 50 or 100x revenue multiple times, even in growth rounds, those days are also largely over. Maybe there'll be exceptions that that disprove that. But for the most part, those are over. So if you kind of, you know, remove those two things, I think we're kind of back to actually a little bit of a more normal business environment, which is like companies have to be thinking about about uh, about cash flow, about profitability, about their margin structure. They they can't spend money on everything. They have to be focused. Um, you know what we'll see is a pairing back of some of the longer range R and D initiatives, a pairing back of some of the perks that that probably just were were a little bit egregious. You know, kind of given the you know given the environment. Um, you know, startups will have to be a bit more resourceful on on how they are are spending their dollars, and I think actually it's all it's uh, it, all, these are all things that are actually kind of like good 
um, in terms of for the long-term sustainable uh, sustainability of any company or or ecosystem. So, um, so I think that's the kind of current state. Now, the X factor in all of this is interest rates and the Fed. And if those like get to you know unprecedented levels, then all bets are off because then you start to have a complete economic disruption. Um, uh, you know, outside of tech, that then will flow even further into tech at a rate that that we have not seen in in the modern you know kind of tech ecosystem. You know, one of the interesting things that's happening though, again, talking about earnings, right? You're at a one billion dollar run rate for the I think for the first time. Yep. Or yep. Congratulations. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, but also companies like Amazon and Google and Meta even are are doing pretty well in terms yep. of revenue. Amazon said they're going to hire 150,000 people during the um. During the holiday season to fulfill orders, Google hasn't even cut yet. I mean, Meta cut 10, uh, 10 11,000. That's one of the biggest cuts so far. However, they went from 48,000 pre-pandemic to 87,000 right. as of last quarter. And so one, well, let, let me just ask this one. Sure, and, sure. and then you know, feel free to have at it. But I made this point on CNBC on Monday. Finally, um, external dynamics, uh, return to office, uh, work from home, uh, the way in which some of the cities in the Valley, San Francisco, for example, have changed. Some argue not for the better. Do you think that colors all of this right now? Absolutely. I mean, I think companies are are starting to say we want to take control back from the worker. Right. We had a long period of time where the worker was effectively in charge. Right. If you didn't want to work in the office, you didn't have to work in the office for a while. You couldn't work in the office. They were putting unreasonable demands, in some cases, on employers to remain, uh, you know, working for them. And employers have seen that they, you know, they lost the power. And what we're seeing right now is they're trying to take that power back. One of the things that I think might be happening is companies are taking this signal that things might eventually go south. They haven't gone yet. And I mean, of course, the stock prices are down. But using that as a way to claw power back from from the worker, what do you think about that? Um, I still I'm still gonna um, not 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 go with that one. Um, <laughs> to me <laughs> to me I actually I just think it's um I, I think about it more. I I think the only the only category that maybe I agree on is like is like if we agree that like sushi bars are inside of a inside of like a corporate building are right. are power to the worker. If you if you kind of isolate that for a second. Um, I think the rest is actually kind of like like just boring financial math. Um, Wall Street slash like the world values software companies at a higher rate than everything else in the economy because software companies are supposed to have high gross margin and and then thus high operating margin. And so the reason that you love Microsoft as an investor is because these people show up at work, they they write software that they can sell at ninety percent gross margin. And at least historically, and um, and that kind of like flows through the financial statements where you end up getting thirty or forty percent profit margin as a result of that. That is what hmm. that is why Microsoft gets to be a two trillion dollar company, and why there's nothing else in in history in the economy that that gets to do that. It's like we write software that we can go sell to a billion or two billion people, and you only write the code once, and it's very differentiated and it's very sticky. And then that becomes very profitable because you didn't have to spend that much money on a, on a kind of incremental basis. That's why software is super valuable. We, we in, the, in the tech industry kind of somewhat forgot about that. Like, like basically, right. we forgot hmm. that the reason that Microsoft gets to trade at, at $2.5 trillion or $2 trillion and 10 times revenue or 8 times revenue at their scale, which is literally unprecedented, is because of their margin structure and their business model. So, so then when you go and translate that all the way down to a, a company that maybe is doing a 50 million in revenue or 100 million in revenue, 
and, and they're going to spend the next 10 years burning cash to ever even generate a dollar of profit. That is, that is sort of just like the math doesn't work in a, in a market where, where we have all been reminded of that, of that excess. And, and, and interest rates probably drove it. The lack of stimulus and, and that kind of winding down drove it. But, but I really think it's actually, it can be far simpler, which is just these companies have in some cases either overhired or overinvested in, in new things, thinking that, that the pandemic kind of accelerant was somehow going to be something you could just kind of continue to scale out right. on a spreadsheet. And that just didn't happen. And so, and so now you have to kind of revert back, uh, uh, you know, to like, like we just got to go back to like, okay, 2019 or 2020 investment levels as opposed to 2022 or 2019 investment or 2021 investment levels. So that's, that's at least what's happening at like the Wall Street level and the board conversations. Maybe there's some other subtler elements of people trying to like, you know, add in a little bit of the employee, employer thing or employee thing. But, but for the most part, like I think about this as pretty simple, just financial math of businesses have gotten in some, in some cases, in some markets based on the pandemic, they've, they've gotten ahead of themselves and now they have to kind of rationalize that. Right. Okay. And so, um, let's, let's talk again about Elon. I mean, I feel like he factors into every single one of these conversations. CEOs seem to be a fan of, of the slash and burn that he did at Twitter and look Twitter made it through the world cup and it didn't die despite all the predictions that, that, you know, with no infrastructure engineers, a thing was done. What are, what's going on in your CEO group text? Like, are people seeing this cutting of like what 60% of Twitter uh, employees and saying, okay, well, they're still functioning. So, you know, maybe that's something that we can do too, or is it something that people are kind of looking at and saying, if we need a cut, we're going to, you know, maybe cut, but do it in a, little bit more of a thoughtful manner. Yeah, I, I have not been in a in a group conversation where uh, where it has been proposed to to follow that that methodology. Right. Um, uh, I think um, you know I think honestly it's a testament to the the prior teams at Twitter uh, in infrastructure and engineering that that they've continued to scale and and remain resilient at all to, uh, you know ostensibly all time traffic levels. Um, and so that that's that's fantastic. I think. Um, uh, but you're not I, seeing. You don't see like you know, a uh, broad uh, follow in tech. Like there's all these CEOs that have been praising him either overtly or behind closed doors in terms of his ability to cut. But that's maybe more of like the the thinkfluencers than the than the builders themselves. Yeah, I, I think other than like, uh, other than people being like, wow, like I wonder how much, you know, you, you, like how many features can you build if, you know, on a per, <laughs> on, 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 on every kind of individual team, could we get more more features, you know, kind of built faster um, no, nobody that, that I've, you know, had reasonable conversations with, uh, you know, thinks this is anything other than like a, an experiment to watch. Right. Um, and, um, uh, and then I think, you know, again, I think there, there's probably optimistic, um, enthusiasm for, for the idea of like, let's get back to some of the, you know, slightly more kind of hardcore bust through walls, you know, kind of days of, of what, what startups, you know, have traditionally always been about. And, um, and frankly, I think a lot of companies executed that way through the pandemic. And I have no opinion about Twitter's culture previously. Don't, you know, don't know enough employees to, to, to have, have a sense of it. But, um, but I think like in general, like historically people have looked up, including myself to Elon as somebody who's just like, you know what, we're going to freaking build that car in like a, an amount of time that seems completely unbelievably fast. And that's and exciting. I think, yeah. yeah. And I think having, I think having examples of that in the industry are, are you know generally positive and uh, and I think it's actually totally appropriate that it, people have completely different opinions about the the method to the madness as well. Like it's like that's what's you know 
like I mean, that that's what's fun about the internet is we get to debate all these different approaches. Where does that um, leave us then with the work from home versus remote? <laughs> because it's sort of the nexus of all these conversations. Where, or sorry, work from home versus the office. It's the nexus of all these conversations. It's the uh, uh, the management saying we need you in the office. You're not going to be productive at home. It's the workers saying we still have some power, and you know maybe this is the right way to get things done. And residual COVID nervousness in some cases. Um, where do you view that discussion going and where are most of your peers uh, starting to to fall on the line of let's do this hybrid or, you know, or remote, total, total remote or in the office type of uh, a plan in terms of where people work? Yeah, I, I think most people are not in the category of like fully in office. And um, uh, I think actually there's, you, you know, even even tying back to the Elon thing, like you have to remember most of his businesses uh, are very, very physical in nature. Um, right. And, and kind of anybody you talk to in the manufacturing world, like if you just go down south into, into San Jose and you go to like the chip companies, um, most of those companies are fully back in the office because they literally make computer chips. And like, and they, they've set the tone that if we're going to have people in factories working on building computer chips, we're going to be also be in the office designing them and collaborating together. So, so like, so, so, you know, Elon comes from that world and, and, and kind of is, grafting that onto Twitter, which is actually like totally makes sense uh, that, that, that's, that would be his perspective. I think probably the, 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 maybe the, the middle ground that I'm probably seeing the, the highest volume of is some mix of, you know, a few days a week in the office is going to be the strategy. We will have greater flexibility than we did pre-pandemic around just the life, you know, kind of dynamics that people deal with. Um, I, I'm, I'm not seeing, you know, that many companies make, make kind of like remote only or remote first statements as much as they were in the kind of peak of the pandemic. And probably if anything, we're starting to see a slight veering back to kind of more of a hybrid approach, uh, than, than not. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I got the, um, the scoop that Twitter was going to work from home forever oh, wow. and, uh, wrote that story when I was still at Buzzfeed and, uh, it blew up of course, cause it was like still when companies were trying to figure out. Um, whether they were remote or in person. And I learned something. <laughs> Nothing is forever. Yeah. Always, <laughs> yeah exactly. Forever asterisk until Elon uh, buys your yeah. company. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how are you handling it at Box? Yeah. So um, we're, we're kind of in that category that I, that I described, at least I'm, I'm starting to see co- some convergence on. So, uh, you know, we had remote based, you know, hiring pre-pandemic. We certainly increased that uh, during during the pandemic, uh, for a variety of reasons, we also have, you know, I don't know, ten some odd uh, uh, office hubs in many places that we do business. And uh, for a lot of the folks near office hubs, we we have a kind of a two you know plus day a week uh, sort of a- approach to people coming in uh, as a um, as sort of a norm that we're establishing. We still have no mandate, partly because I can't I can't quite figure out like the idea of mandating you know, something that, that has so many caveats and, and, and asterisks that it's just easier for me right. to, to kind of think about it as, listen, I see, I personally see a lot of value in, in uh, people coming together in person. It, it's helpful for trust building. It's helpful for relationship building. Uh, it's helpful for collaboration. And, um, and I don't think that, that, that is, has to be a five day a week thing, but I also think it's probably something that's better than, than more than just like a monthly offsite. Um, if you can, if you can pull it off. And so, so I, I'd like to get into a, a, a strong rhythm of a few days a week in the office with way greater flexibility. You know, if, if somebody's got to deal with a, a parenting thing at 3 p.m., go for it. Who cares? 
Um, and, uh, and then all of that gets stitched together through digital technologies. And, uh, and that, that is something that is, is clearly not going to ever, we're never going to go back from that. You know, every meeting that I've been in the office, I work five days a week in the office, every meeting I'm in, um, it's going to be on Zoom, no matter what. There's going to be, there's going to be people that are remote. We will not have a only in office, you know, kind of meeting probably, you know, till the end of time at this point. Um, I think that's a good thing because we can get more talent. We can work more collaboratively in a distributed fashion. But I think we can also have some accelerated benefits of when we can work together in person as well. Yeah. And it's also it's cool now that like you can just it, it has become normal to just hop on a Zoom when needed, yep. especially like if it's a business meeting and usually, you'd, you know, plan it a month out. Now you can just have it a couple of days later. To- and totally. Get stuff done quicker. It's pretty cool. It's a huge product. It's a huge yeah. boon. And, and that's the thing is like like to me, all the evidence points to to that remote or distributed or digital work is actually more productive if I measured that in terms of just like sheer output of, of stuff that you can do in, an, in a company that is more knowledge worker oriented. Um, but actually, I think that there's, that, that there's a, uh, a different dimension of, of, of culture, of alignment, of, of kind of collaboration that in-person uh, equally kind of creates and fosters. And so merging those things together, I think, is the ideal outcome. Okay, so Aaron, we're getting close to the end of the show, but also the end of the year. Uh, this year, holy crap, man, we've had so much go on uh, between Elon buying Twitter, uh, the FTX, and multiple other crypto collapses. Uh, and then, of course, this new stuff with generative AI. So uh, let's say we do a podcast again around this time next year. Uh, what's your one prediction of the crazy thing that's going to happen in 2023 that we're not anticipating? Oh no, that's or is hard. it going to be a totally normal year where and there there won't be anything that goes? I think we need crazy. one of the. I think we need a normal year. Like we need like a 2019 again, um, <laughs> where just like we don't we don't we're not in for anything. It's all it's all pretty fine. It's a good economy. Like I want a 2018 2019. So um, uh, like that, that that those were the days. Um, hard to predict any like obviously black swan events. You know, Elon. I'm sure we'll buy another company. Then we'll be dealing with some version of this um, yet again. But um, I think I think you you can do one thing that that I would I would be willing to fully fully get you know conviction around is is this will be a year of kind of compounding AI innovation. Um, mm. You know, we saw some early phases in the early 2010s of what this wave would look like. Things kind of slowed down a little bit, um, and I think they're back. Um, and I think they're gonna they're gonna be you know back in a, in an increasing fashion. Um, and uh, and so I'm pretty excited for what the the potential is there. Aaron Levy, thanks for coming on. Thanks, man. Good to see you. Good to see you too. All right, that will do it for us here on Big Technology Podcast. Thank you so much, Aaron Levy, for joining. Always great to have you. Thank you, Nate Gowatney, our esteemed audio editor, for putting this together. Thank you to LinkedIn for having me as part of your podcast network. Here we go. We're rounding out the end of 2022. And man, it's been a fun year. Uh, And of course, I want to thank all of you, the listeners. If you're here again, please rate us five stars. uh, If you can, we're so close to hitting 100 on Spotify. Uh, and we're we're blasting ahead on Apple Podcasts. Five stars takes a second, mean a lot. And that, that will just do it for us here. So again, as I mentioned, we have an all-star week coming up. Dave Freeberg from the All In Podcast, he's going to be joining. And Stephanie Link uh, will also be here, a frequent CNBC contributor and also uh, from Hightower Investments, um, breaking down the market. Well, this has been fun. Again, always great to have Aaron. Always great to have you. And we'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast. Big Technology Podcast.